Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 61 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Dorian Abbott, an associate professor in the Department of Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago. Abbott received his PhD in applied math from Harvard in 2008, came to the University of Chicago as a Chamberlain Fellow in 2009, and stayed on as a faculty member beginning in 2011. His research uses mathematical and computational models to understand and explain fundamental problems in Earth and planetary sciences. But today we'll primarily be discussing the snowballed Earth hypothesis, the idea that during two several million year epochs, some 600 to 800 million years ago, glaciers extended from continents into the ocean at or near Earth's equator by some accounts with ice as much as a kilometer thick, covering most of our oceans. Abbott joins us from Chicago. Dorian, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hi, good to be here. First off, please define what you mean by a snowballed Earth. Yeah, so the idea of a snowballed Earth is that Earth, at some points in the past, was either completely glaciated or almost completely glaciated. There has to have been glaciers at the equator, or ice sheets, large amounts of land ice flowing into the ocean. We know that much. They don't have to have covered all of the land on the equator. There could have been dry regions that were unglaciated, smaller or larger. And there's some debate about how complete the ice coverage over the ocean was. Some people think it was the ocean was completely covered in ice, and other people think there were some regions of open ocean near the equator. So set the scene for us what the surface of Earth was like before this glaciation started and what was it like after the glaciation? Before the first snowball Earth events about 2 billion years ago, the data are relatively sparse in those time frames. But as far as we can tell, the, the global mean climate was not too different from modern Earth. The most important difference was that the oxygen level was very, very low before 2 billion years ago. And so the chemistry in the atmosphere was different. And in particular, you could build up large hydrocarbon hazes and you had much more uh, methane for other reasons that we might talk about later, the faint young sun problem, there was probably a large amount of CO2 at those times. But this was before the great oxidation event. Exactly. Then the great oxidation event, interestingly enough, is actually correlated with those first snowball events roughly in time. The very so first possible. Ones. So, so how many? So, you're talking about. We were going to mention the fir- the earlier ones. You think there were probably four known probable snowball Earth? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, four of them. Okay. Uh, I mean, the only potential problem is that some of these events last for tens of millions of years, and it could be a little hard to tell if there were actually multiple s- snowballs and some thaws in the middle. L- let's let's say there were four events. And so the interesting thing is that both there's sort of two pairs of two events, and both of these pairs appear to be correlated with increases in oxygen in the atmosphere. So there's sort of two jumps in oxygen, one around the first snowball period a couple billion years ago, and one around the second snowball period 
six or 700 million years ago. And what is the correlation, do you think? Yeah, so why is that? Okay, so why is that happening is like, you know, that's a big million-dollar question. So there's been a few theories published, but basic answer is we don't know. And some of the theories put the causal direction saying that the snowball caused the oxygen to increase. And some of them say something more like the oxygen increase caused the snowball. So there was a lot of methane in the atmosphere before the first snowball period. And the oxygen rose, which could lead to the rapid oxidation of methane and a decrease in the amount of methane and a cooling because methane is a greenhouse gas and that could have caused the snowball. So that's one idea that's out there. According to SnowballEarth.org, Joe Kirschfink at Caltech coined the name Snowball Earth in 1989. He was the first to associate the runaway ice albedo concept to a known geological event. First of all, what is an albedo for those who are not familiar with that term? It's a planetary science term, albedo. Yeah, so uh, who's the guy in, I guess it's Harry Potter. Is his name Albus Dumbledore? I'm not a Harry Potter fan. I'm one of the few on yeah. Earth, but but you take Yeah, it. so there's a guy called Albus, and he's got a big white beard because Albus means white, and albedo is the same root, so it means whiteness. And it's a measure of the reflectivity of an object, the reflectivity to solar radiation. So the higher this albedo, the more sunlight is reflected. And it's uh, defined so that it's zero if all the sunlight is absorbed, and it's one if all the sunlight is reflected. So the ice albedo feedback would be you start to cool things down. So because it's colder, you get more ice. But because there's more ice... Your albedo is higher, it's more reflective, and so you get colder and you get a positive feedback. So what is a Maranoan glaciation, which was uh, some 635 million years ago? Yeah, so this is the most recent snowball event. Uh, in, in general, in geology, the more recent something is, the better the data you have on it. And so this is the one where there's probably the best data. And it's called Maranoan, just, that's just sort of the name of some geological formation where it was first identified or the data was best, something like that. And then there was another one actually at 710 million years ago that covered most of, or all of Earth's oceans from the poles to very low latitudes. Well, that one's called the Sturdian. The Sturdian, okay. Yeah, and actually, uh, you know, the Maranoan would have, had the same glacial extent as the Sturdian, probably. So they're both snowball events. So there was, there had to have been ice on the land near the equator for both of them. Of the one, the the one that's best known, the Maranoan event. That, uh, do you have any idea what caused it? Well, we don't know for sure what caused any of them. No, I mean, uh, one hypothesis that's been fairly popular recently is that. They could have been caused by these things called large igneous provinces. Uh-huh. And the idea is they, those could have been associated with huge amounts of, of aerosols being spat into the stratosphere and then causing a cooling. So in other words, it would be volcanic uh, gassing, outgassing? Well, it's the funny thing is that the traditional explanation for getting out of a snowball earth is once you're globally glaciated, the volcanoes spit out CO2, and that eventually leads to enough warming to end it. 
But in this case, and that would be volcanic outgassing. But in this case, it's more like a different type of outgassing. So it would be sulfur dioxide coming out, forming sulfate aerosols in the stratosphere and leading to a cooling. Why is understanding this snowball Earth hypothesis important for contemporary climatologists? Because people are probably, listeners are probably saying, well, you know, this happened billions of years ago. Why is this important? Well, so, okay, the first reason I would say it's important is actually because it seems to have been associated with increases in complexity of life. The last snowball periods are fairly shortly before animals kind of get started and increase in their complexity. As we talked about before, the two major snowball eras are correlated with increases in oxygen on the planet. So major reorganizations of the atmospheric chemistry. And of course, oxygen is essential for animal life. And so they seem to be potentially related to, incre- to making the planet more hospitable for complex life. At the same time, if you have complex life already, then a snowball would be bad for the complex life, presumably. And so for, in terms of Earth's, the, the history of life on Earth and the potential habitability of exoplanets, I would say those are the main reasons that you'd be interested in the snowball Earth. And at each of the epochs, so let's go back to two billion, roughly 2 billion years ago, maybe not quite, you think the first snowball glaciation occurred. How complex was the life at that point? Because it couldn't have been that complex because it had to be, have been mostly anaerobic bacteria because we had not had the great oxidation event. And then yeah. maybe later on, a billion years later, we were starting to see some multicellular complexity in Earth's oceans paint the picture of what kind of life or complex life we could have expected at, at either of these epochs. Certainly in the first snowball, life was mostly uh, very simple. In the Sturdian and the Marinoan, the ones 600, 700 million years ago, there's a possibility that life was much more complex. Some people have found what looks like they could be fossil structures of something larger, Uh, And then there's, as you mentioned, the sponges. So you get this genetic dating of sponges that seems to indicate that they they had uh, an ancestor before the snowballs, which would imply that those sponges survived through the snowballs, which is interesting and could potentially constrain the type of snowball that actually occurred. In particular, how much of the ocean was covered with ice, in fact. But... Early on, we're going to have anaerobic life, a life that doesn't have, doesn't need oxygen. And then you get the snowball uh, earth glaciation at 2 billion years. And then later on, a billion years later, you get another snowball earth. Until you see an illustration of a snowball earth. I mean, it's very, we, we have an idea what earth looks like from the, from the Apollo missions and from robotic missions from NASA. We, we, we have a, the pale blue dot. It's a beautiful place. But you see the snowball Earth. Uh, it's striking because it's so alien looking. It looks like something out in the outer solar system. No, you're right. Yeah, it would be a very different planet uh, from modern Earth. So there sort of has been, was a very successful paradigm in geology for 150 years or more which was that we should never, when we look in the geological record, we should never say that something's happening that doesn't have a direct analog in modern Earth. And so an associated 
idea is that things sort of happen gradually, that the records that you see in geology gradually build up. And maybe in the late 20th century, that started, there started to be examples where that didn't seem to fit. And so one example is the uh, bolide impact at the end of the Cretaceous and start of the tertiary. And another example is these snowball events. There's something really wacky and different that seems to have happened. So that's sort of like a broad picture of how the scientific thinking on this topic had to adjust itself to deal with the data that were coming in. Is this snowball earth hypothesis now fairly accepted? Because in 1989, when Kirsch first proposed it, the mainstream science community threw tomatoes at it, right? The majority, the vast majority even, of people now accept that there were glaciers at sea level, at the equator, flowing into the ocean. Uh, I think the real point of contention is how much of the ocean was covered with ice. The people who want this hard snowball or full snowball, they're thinking the whole ocean was covered with ice pretty much, except for maybe a few isolated areas. And then there's a whole other group of people who want something ranging from a ring around the equator to the whole tropics, the ocean to be open with no ice on top of it. And that's where most of the contention is right now. So as incoming sunlight, though, is uh, reduced, ice expands from the poles to the equator. Uh, yeah. As more ice covers the globe, the planet becomes more reflective or higher in albedo, which further cools the surface and causes more ice to expand, uh, yeah. the authors of a paper wrote. So if ice ex- reaches a certain extent, it becomes kind of a runaway process. So it's true. Venus at the moment is in what we would call a runaway greenhouse, uh, but this would actually be a runaway snowball Earth, and this yep. would result in global glaciation. By some estimates, some MIT researchers have said that Earth would have to experience a 2% drop in incoming sunlight over a period of about 10,000 years to tip into a global ice age. Well, the particular model that they were using, that's a really important paper because of the... Uh, theoretical results that it gives, but it's not really designed to make a detailed calculation of the amount, the reduction of insulation that would cause a snowball. But that's not, that number you gave, 2%, is not obviously wrong. But it's just, there's a lot of uncertainty in a number like that. I guess the $64,000 question, or you would say the million-dollar question, (laughs) is did Earth have what is known as a hard snowball, or was were there parts of the oceans which remain ice-free in a state referred to as a, a water belt? What is a water belt? The idea is you have a region of water around the equator, stripe of open ocean, and then ice at higher latitudes. The main argument that the people who would like a water belt have is if life, especially complex life like sponges seems to have survived through these later glaciations, it's hard to imagine that if the entire ocean was covered in ice. Now, of course, under the ice, there would have been water, but sponges need sunlight to do their job. Now, the hard snowball people would say, well, there were still oases, you know, small regions of open ocean. And so that would be their response. And then the main thing arguing for the hard snowball is that these things seem to have lasted for like 
in some cases, millions or tens of millions of years. And so it's a little harder to get that type of a stable solution with a water belt in a climate model. And so that's the argument they would make. So Astronomy Magazine actually wrote that there's also evidence that the first multicellular animals originated during this snow, one of these snowball events, probably something like sponges, which we mentioned before. And one idea is that during a snowballed Earth, ecosystems may have been more isolated from one another, and this might be a situation that might have been helpful for evolving new forms of life. Or they also see sponges as being more cooperative, and perhaps uh, multicellularity would have been more favored during such an extreme event? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely possible. That's, but, it, you know, everyone should understand that that's speculative. The problem with geology is you can't do a controlled experiment. That seems to be consistent. It's a story that's consistent with the evidence we have, but we, it's not proven. How did we get out of the snowball? So you authored a paper that posited that clouds could have, have maybe explained how Earth warmed up a bit and and it began to melt the main warming mechanism the most important one we think is carbon dioxide and what happens in normal earth like modern earth well modern earth our carbon dioxide budget's a little screwy but let's say 300 years ago you have co2 coming out slowly from volcanoes like 10 or more times less than what we're emitting from burning fossil fuels. And then you have what's called weathering, a process through reactions with the rock where the CO2 is removed from the atmosphere and then eventually buried when ocean crust subducts. And those would balance each other. And during a snowball event, you have the whole surface covered with ice. And that weathering process that removes CO2 would be shut off, set to zero. And so slowly, slowly, the outgas CO2 will build up in the atmosphere and it will get high enough to cause the planet to degratiate. That, I think, most people accept that as the dominant mechanism. The problem is, quantitatively, it can be hard in certain climate models at what we think is a CO2 corresponding to what there's some geological evidence for to, to, be, to actually deglaciate the climate model. And so... That paper was about the fact that if you have some clouds, and you, even though it's cold, you can still get clouds. Those clouds, clouds on modern Earth, uh, reflect sunlight, and they also absorb Earth's radiation and lead to a greenhouse effect. But in a snowball planet, they, the sunlight is already being reflected a lot. So clouds don't reflect a lot more sunlight. And so they can have a strong warming effect. And this could be the additional warming that you need to explain that seeming inconsistency between the amount of CO2 there actually was and how much is needed to deglaciate the planet. And so you and colleagues wrote in a paper that deglaciation would not have been triggered in the tropics where a strong hydrological cycle constantly regenerates fresh, bright snow at the surface, but rather in mid-latitudes. And that's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Where snowfall rates are notably lower. Yeah, well, I mean, one important thing to understand is that the maximum temperature on a planet, uh, instantaneous maximum, is often not at, uh, at the equator. 
And so, especially if you have a planet with a low heat capacity, uh-huh. and the snowball Earth, the, the, you know, the oceans are covered with ice, so it has a low heat capacity. Earth's obliquity is 23 and a half degrees, which means that your maximum uh, insulations are well off the equator. And so, during the summertime in a given hemisphere. And so, you can have a, it, it can be locally much warmer in the mid latitudes than at the equator. And in that paper, they also found an additional effect was that the way the hydrological cycle works in the snowball, they found uh, more net evaporation in those regions. And that should tend to lead to a darkening of the ice because in net evaporation regions, any dust in the system will tend to accumulate there. And But you actually wrote in one of your own papers that uh, deglaciation is thought to have eventually occurred as the ice covered prevented silicate warm weathering and photosynthesis, causing volcanic emissions to raise the atmospheric CO2 level to an amount that allowed the planet to leave this ice house state. What it prevents is this weather is this weathering effect that removes CO2. Uh-huh. And the original idea for that actually comes from Joe Kirschfink. He proposed that when he thought up the snowball idea. So originally. explain that a bit because that, that's a bit confusing. There's a carbon cycle on Earth and there's CO2 being emitted by volcanoes right. into the atmosphere, and it's being removed from the atmosphere through this process called weathering, where the sort of CO2 dissolved in rainwater reacts with rocks, and then eventually it gets into the ocean, and then it precipitates down into the ocean floor, and it gets buried uh, when the ocean floor subducts. And that weathering process requires warm rainwater to work and so it couldn't work during a snowball event and so we would expect the co2 to build up to high values because you would still have it coming out of volcanoes and the weathering removal process would be shut off when you say subduct when the plate the plates we 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 have plate tectonics we our surface is basically composed of these great plates which crash in, into each other and then they subduct underneath each other which helps recycle sediment, uh, our carbon from the atmosphere. That's what you were meaning by subduction, right? Exactly. As we've noted, widespread volcanoes may have spewed aerosols, as you mentioned, uh, blocking incoming sunlight on global scales. But another idea is that primitive algae may have evolved mechanisms that facilitated the formation of light-reflecting clouds. Yeah, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, and there's a lot of mechanisms that you can think of that can uh, that are within these ranges of uncertainty that could potentially lead to a snowball. This is not textbook uh, science; it's cutting-edge science. Uh, but it's a frustrating answer. <laughs> it's frustrating because we don't, re- you know, we know about these potentially four epochs where our whole yeah. planet was covered in ice, maybe a kilometer yeah. thick. It's crazy. How did it affect life? How did it affect the evolution of life? Could it be caused by some weird algae bloom that suddenly, you know, raises the, our planet's albedo so that the sun's light is reflected to such an extent that we go into this crazy glaciation? I mean, yeah, so that frustration you're feeling is the tension that drives science forward. And so these are questions that on a decadal scale, it's possible we'll answer them. We just haven't gotten there yet. How could dust significantly lower the snowball albedo? 
if you've ever seen ice, let's see, let's start with snow in a city. It falls in the city and it's white and beautiful. And two days later, it's got all kinds of gunk on it and it's really dark. And that's sort of a small scale example of the kind of thing that dust could do. In, in the case of the city, it's often pollution. But in this case, it would be mineral dust, things like that, that would darken the ice, decrease the albedo and make it absorb, make the planet absorb more solar radiation and therefore be easier to deglaciate. What about 3.5 billion years ago or so when we had the sun, the faint sun paradox? As any star evolves on the main sequence, its luminosity increases with time. And it, in the case of the sun, the luminosity increases about 1% per 100 million years. And so what that means is that the sun, the sun's luminosity was about 50% lower than it is today in that range when Earth formed. So early Earth should have been a snowball permanently all the time. And that's what we call the faint young sun problem or paradox. The mostly accepted solution to that is that this weathering process I described before runs slower when the temperature is lower. And so more and more CO2 would build up in the atmosphere of a planet with a lower amount of insulation because of a lower luminosity of the sun. And so what this means is that early Earth would have very high CO2 levels. Now, you might think that a planet with a smaller insulation would be more likely to go into a snowball. However, the interesting thing is if there's more CO2, then suppose there are sort of typical variations in CO2 or other forcings, those will be fractionally smaller and therefore less likely to kick you into a snowball. And this is pointed out recently by Robin Wordsworth at Harvard. And so according to his model, the smaller the planet CO2, the more likely you are to be kicked into a snowball, which actually implies that in more recent times, you should be more likely to find a snowball Earth. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. And CO2 is simply carbon dioxide. What might tip? Earth back into a global glaciation. As crazy as that may sound today with the temperatures we've seen in the Pacific Northwest this summer and over the uh, the heat dome over Canada, are they related to long-term climate change? How do we tip back into a snowball Earth? Well, we don't know how we got into the snowball Earth before, for sure, so I can't answer that question with certainty. But Well, speculate. The, you know, speculate. Assuming, on, speculate. You know, just speculate. Yeah, so... So assuming, I mean, one of, the, one of the going theories is that there were these large igneous provinces that created a bunch of sulfur aerosols that cooled the planet. Well, there isn't a large igneous province being formed right now. And what is would it? argue that and what is we're it? not about to go into a snowball earth. So what is a large igneous pro province? Like a huge region where it's like, the, it's like a burp of the mantle mantle burps last millions of years and so it's uh just a big active volcanic region that's spitting out igneous rocks and so sort of gases and all sorts of gunk and the deccan and traps in on the subcontinent of, of india are, are isn't that an igneous province 
Yeah, that would be an example. And so, but there's been a lot of examples in Earth's history, and there doesn't seem to be one being formed right now, which would argue that we're not in danger of going into a snowball Earth if that was the cause. And so, uh, now when when you talk about uh, the mantle burping, you're not talking yeah. about just your your run-of-the-mill volcanic eruption. You're talking about no. something on a much larger scale. Yeah, it's almost like you would have a plume of of buoyant material in the mantle, a large plume coming up and hitting the crust. It's flowing rock. Flowing rock. It's solid. Oh, it's solid. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's not liquid. Solids can flow in certain situations. Okay. What causes these these mantle plumes and these igneous provinces? Well, I'm not sure there's a, a super accepted explanation for that, but it, it's basically if you have... Imagine you have boiling water, right? Right. You see you know you can see air bubbles forming and stuff and they're not constant and then you know if you could see the temperature you can see that the heat that's being put into the water at the bottom doesn't just uniformly come up it comes up in blobs and it's kind of like that so you have a a type of convection where there's some level of turbulence occurring it's things are not just smoothly the heat's not just smoothly being transferred from the bottom to the top and then the third thing you should know is that You've probably heard of ice ages. So ice ages are not snowball earths. Ice ages are relatively small perturbations in the amount of ice cover on Earth compared to snowball earths. So during an ice age, like the last glacial maximum, Earth is actually more symmetric. So right now, there's a huge ice sheet in Antarctica, but no huge ice sheet. Well, there's Greenland, but that's it in the northern hemisphere. Well, during these ice ages, say 20,000 years ago, there was a big ice sheet covering a lot of Europe and a lot of North America. And so the planet on the north was more like what it is on the south. And we would be, if it, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where we should be starting to head back into an ice age, but that's probably not going to happen because of uh, humans forcing uh, w- with greenhouse gases. So you're saying, in other words... Uh, the human's anthropogenic effects on the climate, the global climate, will probably not push us back into a, a global ice age. I think that's very unlikely. Yeah, it's extremely unlikely that our emissions of CO2 will push us into an ice age or a global ice age. Rises in CO2 uh, make it harder to go into a snowball earth. So the bottom line is, due to our own contribution to greenhouse gases such as CO2 and methane, you do not foresee, number one, Earth going into another ice age, or much less a snowball Earth. Uh, We shouldn't be worried about that. You don't see a snowball Earth ever happening again on this planet? No, I don't think that's true. Uh, But it's not going to happen on human timescales. Who knows in 100 million years? Even as uh, as crazy as the climate seems now, with extreme temperatures on the top top end of the scale, but also extreme low temperatures as well, you know, because climate change is not just about global warming; it's about extremes, right? And um, so, you're just saying that on human time scales of the next 100 years, you do not see a global snowball event happening again but you can't rule it out over a hundred million year time scales is that right that's accurate but with the caveat 
that we don't really know what triggered the first two or three or four, right? That's true, but that that fact doesn't change the statement that you just made. Okay. So on a hundred year time scale, even though we don't really understand why they happened, uh, they they took longer than a hundred years to happen. Right. Okay. So we're not going in a hundred years from now. We're definitely not going to be in a snowball Earth. There's no question about that. So what about Venus, which uh, some planetary scientists think as recently as a billion years ago may have been may have had liquid oceans. I mean, that's not the majority view, but there I know one prominent expert on Venus who thinks that as late as a billion years ago, Venus may have had an ocean. Okay, Is that Michael have, Way. No, actually, it's Stephen Kane at the University of California, uh, Riverside. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, they've both been saying that stuff. Yeah, that's that's uh, a definite possibility. So, so but here, but here's so, my question. So, do you think that Venus might have also, at some point in its past, as crazy it seems now because it's such a hellishly hot, <laughs> an inhospitable planet? Do you think at some point in its past it might have gone through a, a snowball Venus type type glaciation? It could, yeah, it definitely could have, uh, but. We don't have any evidence that it did. And Venus, so that billion year time period is important because it seems that Venus was resurfaced about a billion years ago and a lot of the original geological evidence was erased. And so on Earth, there's this plate tectonics going on where there's a slow resurfacing occurring. But on Venus, it seems that a billion years ago, all the resurfacing happened all at once. And so it sort of erased the earlier data. So it's possible, but we'll, we'll probably never know. And so, uh, as I noted in a Forbes post, planets in the habitable zones of sun-like stars, where surface liquid water is thought to be plentiful, may be more susceptible to the snowball glaciation than previously thought, because it's not clear how any potential life on extrasolar planets might survive a snowball event. And it's not really clear how life on Earth survived its own glaciations. Yeah, so on, I mean, on Earth, the major issue is that we don't actually know what life survived. So we don't know what we're trying to explain. <laughs> uh, and if it was sponges that survived, that's a lot harder than trying to explain microbial life. I think no one thinks it would be hard for microbial life to survive a snowball Earth. But the question is, you know, could photosynthetic multicellular life survived snowball earth that's more of a that's that's a more difficult question but yeah i mean one of the major reasons that you would want to study the snowball earth is it seems to have been important for life in earth's history and it presumably would be important for life on an exoplanet if any exists and so if microbial life i mean obviously uh, microbial life had to have survived uh, some of these glaciations. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. Uh, yeah. Where would they have survived? Would it be like on the sea floor uh, around a, a hydrothermal vent or something? Like deep, deep below the surface? Well, I mean, microbes, as far as I know, can live in Antarctica and Greenland. It's just not that big of a deal for them. So the, you're it talking about be. extremophile uh, bacteria, for instance. Well, I think I think, it's, I think it's I think extremophiles are on either end of the spectrum, 
and yeah. also the chemistry involved, the, the pH. But balance. the temperatures in Snowball Earth are not that cold in a lot of the planet. You know, like it's let's say minus twenty or something Celsius. So it, I just I don't think it's that much of a problem for microbial life to survive those temperatures well some some microbial life would probably be be wiped out by those temperatures i mean they'd be basically be cold enough to freeze but you're saying that at least some would have survived and yeah okay and uh, and then and then under the ice there's all that water uh in the ocean right because so you know it could be a problem for photosynthetic life but the cyanobacteria yeah, those could maybe survive in oases. But okay. I think it's just a lot less of a problem for simple life than for complex life. And uh, have you given any thoughts around what uh, stellar spectral type an exo-Earth would be most susceptible to glaciations? Yeah, or- so it's most susceptible to glaciations for uh, stars that are like the sun, G-stars, or hotter stars so the cooler stars like m stars and the red dwarfs k stars yeah the red dwarfs and k stars are a little bit hotter between m and g there's two issues there the first is they are redder and so they emit more radiation in the near infrared than the sun does Uh and less in the visible and ice and snow are less reflective in the near infrared than they are in the visible. So the albedo is lower. So that means it's harder to get this ice albedo feedback going. It's not, it doesn't have as much firepower. So that makes you less likely to go into a snowball earth. And then the other interesting effect is that the, because a lot of the planets orbiting these stars are going to tend to be tidally locked, which means that they always have the same uh, side facing the star. They do one orbit one rotation per orbit, so the same point is always facing the star. That particular configuration actually makes it really hard to get into the snowball. And the reason is that at that substellar point, you've got really hot temperatures. And so it's hard to close the ice all the way into the substellar point. And so probably if there are Earth-like planets orbiting M stars, they are very unlikely to be in a snowball in the habitable zone. And what do you mean by uh, entirely locked? You mean because of the gravitation? They're so close to their parent star that the gravity from the star has such an effect on their rotation that they become tidally locked, uh, facing one side always facing. Although they're continuing their orbit, one side is constantly facing the 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 other. Right. That's correct. It's like the moon orbiting Earth. So it does one rotation per orbit. So we always see the same side of the moon. We never see the other side. Right. But the moon rotates. It just is that we're locked in in resonance. Yeah, it does one it does one rotation per orbit. Right. Okay. And so that means that the same side is always facing us down here. So what puzzles you most about anything about the snowball earth scenario or hypothesis? What puzzles me most is I would say what started the snowball earth and how complex life survived at least the last one. 
Okay. Why the, those la- are the two biggest open questions? Why What's the that? last one? Why the last one? Why? Because it's more complex. It's more difficult to survive. Oh, just because the last snowball, there's the most evidence that there actually was complex life that survived it. You don't have to explain complex life surviving if there wasn't any complex life at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, those are the two biggest questions right now, I would say. And what puzzles you most about Earth's own climate, the climate history of Earth? What's the most puzzling thing about the Earth's climate history? So the snowballs are major changes in Earth's climate, but most of the time Earth's climate has been really constant, and it's surprisingly constant, and that's usually explained with this with weathering feedbacks, like I talked about briefly. But I think that's maybe not 100% proven. And so I would say what's most puzzling to me is just how stable Earth's climate has been, even though these snowballs represent deviations from that stability, long-term for billions of years, how stable Earth's climate has been. Dorian, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yeah, they. you can type my name in Google and you'll find a Twitter and a, my website with my email on it. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Dorian Abbott, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of Snowball Earth. Thank you. It was fun talking. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>